Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, re-evaluating the record of Winston Churchill as a military commander, the improbable adventures of an actress, writer and rebel Victorian, Roscommon during the revolutionary period, and to end the show, we'll bring you first-hand accounts from the War of Independence and the Irish Revolution. And if you want to listen back to this or any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Winston Churchill, Master and Commander. Just like his ally Stalin and his arch-enemies Hitler and Mussolini, Winston Churchill could not help himself and insisted on personally directing the strategic conduct of World War II. For better or worse, he insisted on being political master and military commander. And all of this is explored in a fascinating new book, Churchill, Master and Commander, Winston Churchill at War, 1895 to 1945. It's published in hardback by Osprey Publishing. The author is Anthony Tucker-Jones. And Anthony, you're very welcome to the show. Hi there, many thanks for having me on. Can we begin, I suppose, with the earlier years of Winston Churchill and his love of taking risks and his early military escapades because uh, you get a good insight into his character at those times? Yes, I mean, uh, while I was researching the book, I was just amazed at the number of times he took, you know, uh, risks with his own personal safety. He was, he was a real danger seeker. Uh, in his early years, and in fact carried that on into later life. But yes, when he was a young lieutenant, he seemed to take inordinate risks for his own personal safety. But one of the reasons he did that was uh, in a desperate bid to get noticed and to win gallantry awards. And he has a bit of a mixed reputation when it comes to his military leadership. He's seen as a great wartime leader. He's seen as a great maybe political leader in a time of great conflict and war. But not necessarily when we look at his World War One experiences and even his, his, his World War II experience, not perhaps as good when it comes to the, to the military side of things. Um, well, Church, I mean, over the years, Churchill's taken a lot of flack for, her, for his conduct during the First World War, not least, of course, uh, Gallipoli, which culminated in as him being you know, effectively forced to resign as head of the Royal Navy, political head of the Royal Navy. Um, but I always think he's been unfairly treated by history over Gallipoli because, of course, he only actually had to say over the naval element and not the ground forces element. Um, and crucially for Churchill, he learned from Gallipoli that you shouldn't run military operations by committee, which is what effectively happened with the, the Dardanelles campaign. Um, but of course, he was cast out into the political wilderness over the you know the shambolic nature of the way the operation was carried out. He then sort of you know did penance by going off to the front to serve um, as a battalion commander, where by all accounts, actually, he was highly respected by his men after they got over the shock of having a celebrity in in their midst, because of course. He was already pretty much a household name by the by the time he went to the Western Front. Um, and then he was sort of rehabilitated back into government when he was given the Minister for Munitions job, uh, which, of course, in more time was a highly important role. And again, from all accounts, he made a pretty good job of that. I mean, he certainly threw himself into it with great gusto uh, and obviously in that role helped Britain's war effort. During the Second World War, why did he make himself Minister for Defence as well as being Prime Minister? Um, that's a good question, and really, that's what informed the book. Really, you know, the element of Churchill, master and commander, and of course, what Churchill did was he became the country's political master by becoming prime minister, but he also became its military commander by appointing himself defence minister, and that, of course, goes back to our you know our comments there on um, on on Gallipoli. 
is that Churchill knew that running military operations through committees was not good. So he wanted to imbue the British war effort in 1940 with decisive leadership. So that's why he did that. He effectively short-circuited the Secretary of State for war. And it meant that the Chiefs of Staff of the Three Armed Forces obviously answered to him direct, which effectively gave him you know, strategic oversight and direction of the British war effort. And it seems to have worked on some occasions, but on other occasions to have gone horribly wrong. And he seemed to have a have a have have, an, have a tendency to ignore his generals. And I wonder, was that a good thing or was that unwise? Um, well, he he had a bit of a problem in that. Of course, you know, obviously he was in the top job and he had to make difficult and painful decisions. Uh, and as the book explains, you know, on numerous occasions, in fact, uh, got it wrong. But I think his his major fault in many ways was not so much his decision-making uh, and the errors that that led to, but it was his impatience. He was always dreadfully impatient for something to happen. Uh, and quite regularly, his generals or his, you know, his um, admirals would say, we're not quite ready to do this, let's not do it, or this operation is ill-advised because we simply don't have the resources. And a lot of the time, they did not stand up to him. So, of course, he would make a decision. It was carried through, um, and it would end in disaster. Um, you know, it was the military commitment to places like Greece that obviously unraveled um, the Allied warfare in Greece because we were unceremoniously booted out of there. Um, British forces there retreated to Crete, which, of course, then sparked a German invasion of the island of Crete. Um, and as a result of our commitment to Greece, <laughs> it stretched our resources in North Africa, which meant we failed to capture Tripoli, which, of course, if we'd done that, it would have knocked the Italians out of the Second World War, or certainly in North Africa, and would have preempted the arrival of Erwin Rommel in the Africa Corps, which, of course, was to drag uh, the war out of North Africa for another three years. So his his problem was that he was always, um, you know, very very impatient for for results. And I think in many ways that was his um, his downfall. And again, going back to Greece, well, that wasn't entirely his fault because he sent Antony Eden's foreign minister out there. And I think Eden took it on himself that, you know, we'd effectively abandoned the French after Dunkirk uh, and was determined not to abandon any other British allies, which meant that he and General Wavell gave the Greek government a commitment to to support them when they were, um, you know, facing threats from uh, Mussolini and Hitler. Where he does seem to have got things right was when uh, he was required to make a decisive decision and he seems to have been very good at making those tough, difficult decisions like, for example, at Dunkirk and also perhaps his decision to destroy the French fleet. Yes, you're right. Um, You know, certainly in the opening stages of the Second World War, he took some very painful decisions and, of course, they proved to be the right ones. We needed decisive leadership after the wobbles of appeasement and with Chamberlain. Um, and, you know, Churchill was very firmly wedded to not treating with Hitler. I mean, he understood what Nazism represented. He understood that the resurgence of Germany was based purely on rearmament. I think he understood that, you know, any agreement he made with Hitler, he couldn't trust Hitler to stick to it. So he took that decision, obviously, very, very difficult decision to authorise the evacuation of the British expeditionary force from Dunkirk, which, as I said earlier, clearly signalled that Britain was abandoning France. You know, um, however you looked at it, and that was a painful decision for him because he didn't want to do that, but he knew if we did not save our army, then we would be in dire straits. And of course, by taking that decision, A, to evacuate the British armed forces from Dunkirk, and B, not to negotiate it, then opened up uh, Britain to the, you know, the Battle of Britain, 
uh, and also of course the resulting blitz on Britain's cities. Um, and they can't have been easy decisions for him, but of course with benefit of hindsight with history, actually they proved the right the right decisions at the right time. Um, so he, 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 I think he got that right. You know, people often say to me, well, Anthony, what do you think his finest hour was? And I know it sounds corny, but I do tend to say, I think 1940, because he gave Britain exactly the decisive leadership that it needed at that particular moment and time uh, and was clearly prepared to make very, very difficult decisions. You touched on his, um, you know, his decision to destroy the French fleet. Again, you know, the French had left Britain, ironically, in a very difficult position because although half of France was occupied uh, and the southern half, Vichy, had sued for peace with with Hitler, um, the French Empire was still very much intact um, but France's colonial forces, of course, answered to the French government and the French government of the day after the German invasion was in Vichy, uh, which posed um, Churchill a problem, you know, because I'd, in an ideal world, uh, the French armed forces and certainly the Navy would have come over to Britain uh, to carry on the fight, but they didn't. And of course, he was worried those ships that were moored in Toulon uh, and also uh, in North Africa at Mosel Kabir, he was worried that they would fall, fall into German hands. So. He took that very difficult decision to authorise the British fleet uh, to sail to French North Africa and demand that those ships are either scuttled, uh, sailed to a neutral port uh, or joined Britain. Uh, and the French, unfortunately, took the decision to fight, which led to a very brief engagement. But of course, what that did was it then soured British relations with France uh, and indeed, of course, with France's colonial interests. It also, in a way, undermined um, the viability of Charles de Gaulle heading up the Free French because at that particular time, he wasn't very well known. Um, and I always think that's one of the great ironies of Dunkirk is that, you know, we have this narrative of this, you know, remarkable miracle where 300,000 odd men were lifted off the beaches. Um, and uh, over a third of them, of course, were actually French troops. And most of them went home to carry on the fight because the French hadn't, hadn't surrendered by that point, went home to carry on the fight. And of course, ultimately ended up in captivity. Whereas if they'd stayed in Britain, um, and actually joined the Free French, it would have given uh, de Gaulle a viable army, which um, he, he struggled to create for many years. Let's talk about some of the disasters then, going back to the to the misjudgments, because there was one, uh, I think, with the, the Italian campaign where uh, Churchill was so frustrated when things went wrong that he threatened to resign and it almost brought down the government. Uh, yes, now that's actually um, in 1944. It was the... Um, Allied invasion of the, the Riviera. So by that point, the, the Axis forces had been defeated in uh, North Africa. Um, and Churchill had prevailed on uh, Roosevelt and Eisenhower that the Allies should maintain this Mediterranean first strategy. Um, so once the Germans and the Italians had surrendered in Tunisia, they took the decision to invade Sicily. Uh, they then invaded mainland Italy, and that didn't go so well. And of course, in the meantime, Stalin was demanding a, the opening of a second front to take pressure off the Red Army on the Eastern Front. And to do that, obviously, it needed an invasion of uh, France. Um, and Eisenhower and, uh, sorry, Roosevelt and um, Churchill had given Stalin this undertaking that they would conduct two parallel landings, so one in Normandy and one on the French Riviera. But, as they, but because of resources, they couldn't conduct them at the same time. So you had uh, D-Day in June of 1944, but the ones in South France didn't didn't occur until mid-August 1944, so way too late to actually affect matters in France. The Germans were already pretty much uh, in headlong retreat by that point. 
And Churchill did not want more troops diverted from Italy. He always saw Italy as a primary way of getting up into Austria and, and, and threatening Berlin, and also a way of forestalling Stalin's ambitions for um, the Balkans and Eastern Europe. Um, and he badgered poor Eisenhower right up until the last minute, kept saying to Eisenhower, you know, this is a waste of time, we should call it off. Eisenhower rightly pointed out that he and that Churchill and Roosevelt had given this undertaking to Stalin that they would conduct the landings and that there wasn't anything he could do. Uh, and at that point, Churchill basically said, you know, um, if I don't get my own way, I'm going to resign and I'll bring the British government down. Uh, Eisenhower, you know, when you look at his conduct during the Sycamore War, he was pretty much a saint. I mean, he had the patience of a saint, that's for certain. Um, he had to put up with numerous tantrums from various generals, um, you know, not least Patton and people like Montgomery. But also, of course, he had to stand up to Churchill, which he did. Uh, and those Riviera landings took place. Uh, he called Churchill's bluff, and Churchill actually didn't resign. Um, uh, but it, but it, but I mean, I think at the time Eisenhower was just amazed that um, Churchill was so adamant that he, he he would make that threat. Very good. Well, it's a fascinating book, Anthony. The book is called Churchill, Master and Commander, Winston Churchill at War, 1895 to 1945. It's published in hardback by Osprey Publishing. The author, Anthony Tucker-Jones. And Anthony, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Excellent, Patrick. Thank you very much for having me. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Emily Saldine's life spanned the entire Victorian era. From humble working class beginnings, a star was born and she counted Charles Dickens as a friend. And she went on to mingle with the Rothschilds, Oscar Wilde and aristocrats. And she even alleged to have had a close encounter with Jack the Ripper. And her story has been told in a brilliant new book, The Improbable Adventures of Miss Emily Saldine, Actress, Writer and Rebel Victorian. It's published in paperback by Alison and Busby. The author is Helen Batten. And Helen, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you. Hello. Can we start off by saying, how did you discover Emily and uh, what attracted you to her story? Um, Well, she's actually my first cousin three times removed. Um, I wasn't aware of her existence until I was actually researching our family history for for a different book. And I was talking to a historian of the local village who said, well, of course, you're related to the famous opera singer. And... um, I didn't know who he was talking about. And he said, just Google her. She's amazing. Um, and there she was, Miss Emily Soldine. And yeah, and not only was she an actress, an opera singer, but she was an impresario as well. She owned her own production company and, uh, and had written a best-selling memoir too. So um, yeah, I, was, I wanted to know more. And as you say, these remarkable careers, opera singer, actress, becoming a journalist and writer in in a later career. How did she rise from these very difficult beginnings and uh, tricky family circumstances to to achieve all of these things? Well, um, she wrote her best-selling memoir in 1898 when she went bankrupt. Um, And in the memoir, she makes it seem like she had a seamless, starry rise to the top. But... um, but actually, it was quite, there was a lot of hard work and a lot of knockbacks. Um, she'd married very young, she'd eloped, um, and she found herself living in a, a single room in Clerkenwell with uh, two babies, another one on the way, and the workhouse looming. Um, and she decided to get herself singing lessons. And she was fortunate in that she had a very good voice, um, but uh, she didn't immediately managed to get any paid work and in the end she had to go into the music hall which is something she didn't really want to do because um, music hall performers didn't have the greatest reputations 
but um, she wanted she wanted fame, she wanted financial independence, so she went for it. And yeah, she 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 made the most of all of her opportunities. So she started off a musical under an assumed name, and then when a leading lady suddenly walked out of um, a, a West End production. Uh, she was asked to step in at the last moment with a few hours notice. She did that. She absolutely nailed it. And from then on, she was the leading lady of uh, light opera. We get a great sense of what kind of, of person she was. And she seems to be in a remarkable character in terms of her likes, her dislikes, even down to the fact that she suffered from stage fright. She loved parties. She loved gambling. Like this is a real full blooded person. Yeah, she definitely, she loved life and she loved people. And she lo- she she said that, Acting was her art and her passion, but she certainly liked all the things that went with the lifestyle. So she loved doing the season. She loved eating. She, she used to have the most enormous meals and, um, and, and write about them at great length. Um, and yes, yeah, she loved gossip. She, lo- she loved hanging out with the most important people, the most important men of the day. So she's, um, she was a very formidable character. The subtitle has... Uh, actress, writer and rebel Victorian. To what extent was she a rebel Victorian and why did her lifestyle and her actions sometimes scandalise uh, respectable people in London? Um, she, well, she was very much her own boss. Um, she was not afraid of uh, using her sexuality to um, to get the best part. Uh, she loved dressing up as a man and, and being the, <laughs> the male hero in theatrical productions. Um, she brought her young half-sister onto the stage and basically they used to act together. She'd be the hero. Her younger sister would be the heroine and they'd play each other's love interest. Um, so, yes, and she also, she was not in favour of the suffragettes um, at all, very outspoken against women getting the vote. And yet at the same time, she campaigned for women's sexuality um, to be recognised for uh, people's affairs not to be stigmatised and for illegitimate children um, not to be stigmatised either. Um, she felt there's a lot of hypocrisy in society and she wanted an end to that. So she wrote a very scandalous novel which had um, abortion at the centre of it and, and then she published her Kiss and Tell memoir outing all the men, the great and the good, who were very respectful on the surface, um, saying who they were having affairs with. Very interesting. What about some of her big dramatic uh, suggestions that, for example, she had this close encounter with Jack the Ripper? Is there any truth to that or was this something that was just a part of the mythology? Um, I I think uh, that Emily had a very good nose for a story. I mean, she did spend 11 years as a top journalist. (laughs) When she came to write her memoir, she knew uh, that the uh, pulling power that a story about Jack the Ripper would have. So she tells of coming home from the theatre late one night before she had to walk around the streets of London um, by herself uh, to get back from, from the theatre to her lodgings. And she claimed, well, firstly, that he'd written her a note in blood, which had been delivered to the backstage, saying that uh, he was out to get her. And, and then about a week later, she came out of the theatre. She had a scene that she was being followed. There was, <laughs> there was um, white chalk arrows um, drawn onto the pavement, beckoning her, um, and she followed them. And in the end, uh, got so far and was so scared she ran away. But I mean, that's that's who knows. <laughs>
<laughs> and how well known was she around the world? Because she did these tours to the United States, to Australia, to New Zealand. Was she a, a, a big name in, in, the, in, the, in the theatrical world? Yes, she was, she was absolutely huge. Um, she'd made her name in, in London and then touring around Britain and Ireland. But just as today, if you really wanted to make it big, you went to the States. And, and these tours were really, really financially risky, but she, she decided to go for it anyway. She went over to Broadway. Um, she'd been massively hyped as the queen of the West End. Um, and I think the American press were really out to get her. So she was really feeling the pressure. She always suffered from terrible stage fright and, and panic attacks, but she managed to go on stage and they absolutely loved her and loved her production company. And she toured the States backwards and forwards through the Wild West, over to San Francisco um, many times. Um, they loved her. They bought out a range of clothes, soldine clothes, all the rage. Um, she even had her face on America's favorite sauce for a few years. Um, so, yes, yeah, she did very well. And then she went to Australia and New Zealand. Um, and they'd never seen a touring company of the quality of Emily Soldine before. And in Sydney in particular, she was seen as royalty. And of course, eventually her, her big journalism job was as a London correspondent for Australia's main national paper. So um, yes, her reputation there was huge. And finally, what do we know about her sexuality? You've talked about her, her interest in playing these male roles, the, the, the performing on stage with her half-sister, you know, her willingness to use her sexuality to get the roles she wanted. It, it seems quite complex and perhaps difficult to maybe pin down. I think she really loved men. Um, I think the love of her life, I mean, she was married, should we say. She's been married from the age of 20 um, to Jack Powell. Uh, but as she said, he never got in the way of the green room, which I think was her way of saying that she was allowed to, to have her dalliances. Um, she had the love of her life was a man called Lord Dunraven, who was a, a politician, a journalist, a very wealthy landowner, um, and a sort of Renaissance, the Victorian equivalent of a Renaissance man. And they had a long relationship for a very long time. I think he broke her heart. Later on, she was to write in newspaper columns very acerbic things about him. Um, but, I mean, interestingly, her husband um, had a stroke when she was in her mid-40s and, and died a couple of years later. And she'd never remarried. And she was proposed. She had plenty of proposals. But um, I think it's very telling that she decided to keep her independence. And, and yes. She could have been financially secure, but she decided she wanted to stay working and stay independent and live on her own in lodgings in Bloomsbury, Bloomsbury Square. Yeah. I think you would have loved to have met her. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure she would be the best company. <laughs> she, she loved to drink. She, she loved brandy and soda, champagne, oysters, and she had the best stories. So, yes, I would have loved to have met her. Well, you can find out more about her stories and her extraordinary life in this new book, The Improbable Adventures of Miss Emily Saldine, actress, writer and rebel Victorian. It's out now in paperback by Alison and Busby, the author Helen Batten. And Helen, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you.
1919, Ross Common men took up arms against the British in the fight for independence, only to turn the weapons on one another three years later when conflict over the continued pursuit of the Irish Republic led to civil war. And a new book tells the story of Roscommon during the period of the revolutionary decade, 1912 to 1923. The book is called Roscommon, The Irish Revolution. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, John Burke, to the show tonight. John, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Patrick. And it's always fascinating when we talk about these county studies of the revolutionary decade because there is so much happening during this period from from debates over land to involvement in the First World War, 1916 rising, and then that whole period of the War of Independence to the, to the Civil War. And Roscommon, there's a story to be told for all parts of this. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, in some ways, it's, it's what happened in Roscommon was redolent of what was happening across the country, but there was a lot of uh, unique instances, personalities, events that Roscommon sort of would uh, <laughs> was happy to lay claim to, and sometimes a lot of what happened there forced along the national the national picture as well. I suppose most um, obviously the 1917 by-election in February that saw the first Sinn Fein backed MP uh, take a seat, so to speak, from the the well entrenched Irish Parliamentary Party and in some in some cases some people might indicate that it's the start of the political downfall for I suppose Redmond's plan, John Redmond's plan and the the, the, the change then to seeing uh, politics not only as part of the uh, the solution to, to Irish independence but uh, uh, a natural comrade of, of the violence that uh, some of the more hardline Republicans thought was the only way to to to, to sort of wrest Irish uh, independence from the British. And talk to us about that by-election, because in a way, that's that had the, the eyes of all of Ireland were on the county at the time, because you had uh, the father of Joseph Mary Plunkett uh, standing for election. And uh, this was, as you say, a, a, a test case and a way of showing what the power and what the support was there for this movement. Well, I think there were an awful lot of people on the Republican side who believed that politics was not going to get them anywhere and that... The only way to break away from the British was by grabbing a gun. Um, this by-election, to a large extent, proved that it, it could actually be a very useful tool in, in the Irish fight for independence. It did not have to be violence-based. And what you had really in 1917 in Roscommon was kind of a disparate group of advanced nationalists all coming behind Count Plunkett and uh, showing that they could work together. They could, especially with men in dynamos like Father Michael Flanagan and Lawrence Ginnell, they could mobilise enough people to show that popular support for what they were looking for um, could be manifested at, uh, at the polls, you know. Let's go a little bit further back to maybe the, the start of the revolutionary period and, and take the story up the 10 years because there seems to me to have been this constant tension between economic forces and economic desires, the demand for land and for resolutions there, and then these political forces as well. And these always seem to be maybe competing against each other. Yeah, to some extent. Um, I suppose like a lot of people <laughs> in the early 20th century Ireland, their, their, demand, their, their desires were rather prosaic. There were those who had an ideology for a free Ireland, but there were those who needed to put food on the table to, to sustain their family, to hopefully get a better economic footing. And at times, their, their uh, energies had to be directed into sort of the, the proximate problems rather than the ultimate or larger problem. So at times, and even as the Sinn Féin found out later in 1920, the power of the fight for the land would be that which would direct people's energies or take people's energies 
And like even when Father Flanagan, though very well respected, tried to convince people that maybe the land could be put on hold and that Sinn Féin should be able to pursue the broader political aim, he found out very quickly that a lot of people in Roscommon weren't having that. And at times, the land agitation continued despite the fact that uh, Sinn Féin and then like O'Flanagan were trying to direct people away from it. But there was a long history of that. Even the early Irish Parliamentary Party um, in Roscommon coming into the MPs that still represented the county in 1912, they all got prominence on the back of their agitation for the land. Men like John Hayden, men like John Fitzgibbon, they all became prominent politicians because of what they did in the fight for the land. And to some extent, they became less and less relevant when they focused their energies on the First World War, believing that supporting Britain would bring home rule and that home rule would then cure all. But the, the fight for the land, when they took their eye off that, people started to drift away. They went to Sinn Féin in part because they were saying that they would then supplement uh, the IPP, re-engage the fight for the land. But even by the time we get to the end of the revolutionary decade, it's still obvious that land in Roscommon is, is a very serious thing. Uh, a lot of the the personalities who came up through the ranks, so to speak, in the 10-year period up to about 1923, they started to focus uh, their, uh, I suppose, energies then on the land again, subsequent to the, the foundation of the Free State and the, the instatement of, I suppose, a free Ireland in adverted commas. And you see that during the War of Independence as well. And talk, maybe talk to us about what happens in Roscommon during that period, because you do have ambushes, you do have uh, various uh, uh, encounters by the, the, the Roscommon IRA, but you also have significant land agitation in the county as well. Mm. Uh, Roscommon, I suppose, in Paris was very, like most of the counties out of the south and midwest, that it didn't engage in a lot of, sort of fatal violence until you went into the summer of 1920. And in sort of ambush terms, it had some very large ambushes, one at Four Mile House in October that year and the following March at Grimoog. The fatality counts in those two virtually doubled um, or accounts for half of all those who were taken out of um, action by the IRA in, uh, in the War of Independence in Roscommon. Now, the problem, I suppose, in Roscommon was, uh, like a lot of places, was armaments and uh, at times ambush um, locations weren't as... Uh, I suppose, easy to pick out as, as some of the commanders may have liked. Some of the commanders themselves were at times seemed to be a bit reticent about engaging in action. Of course, a lot of these men weren't soldiers. They had to, um, they were guerrilla warfare uh, up against conventional arms in the, uh, the British Army, the RIC, the, the Black and Tens. So it could, it's understandable. But at times, it was common when it did engage in violence, it certainly made the headlines. Now, the problem to some extent was that throughout, um, the War of Independence, the land was still very much an issue. And especially in 1920, in the middle of that year, it started to become uh, such a battle for people like in Sinn Féin and the Irish volunteers to, to try and re- focus on the politics rather than the land. Uh, even the South Roscommon commander, Daniel O'Rourke, had to defend his men to G- IRA GHQ to basically tell them that they hadn't run riot on the land issue. GHQ thought that they were perhaps uh, focusing on the wrong thing. But he did have to admit that they did go out, they did engage in land agitation, but they did it as members of a community, as he wrote in inverted commas. But the funny thing was, in some ways, the most warlike, in a conventional sense, um, battles would be those on the land. There was one in uh, North Roscommon or near Arigna, where it was a pitched battle that was was said to have been held between about 60 RIC and 150 land agitators, many of whom would have been 
uh, Sinn Féin or Irish Volunteers. Now there was no, it wasn't a, a gun battle of any sort, but one uh, one of the RIC men termed it the fiercest riot he'd ever seen. And really, when you talk about mobilising in numbers for violent activity, it was only the land that did that that actually inspired that in Roscommon. The fight for independence, fatalities were in single figures most of the time, and at times you had only wounded uh, British uh, Crown forces. Uh, really, violence on a large scale was the land that, that, that forced that along. And finally, when we look at the Civil War, you really do see activities on, on both sides during that conflict. Yeah, the Civil War, in some ways, in most common, the conventional side of it um, petered out very quickly. Uh, really, by the end of July 1922, you're talking about, um, I suppose, pockets of anti-treaty IRA up in the north in Arigna, and one or two small, smaller pockets then around the, the border with Mayo near Bala, around Bala Dream. Uh, to be honest, the uh, support really fell on the pro-treaty side, some, to some extent because people were you know, fatigued with war and all of its consequences. And even some IRA men made it clear on the anti-treaty side that they didn't believe that the anti-treaty stratagem, which in Roscommon, to a large extent, concentrated on infrastructure, damage, roads, bridges, river, or, um, railways, etc., was the way to win the people over. Uh, people had had enough of that sort of disruption. And really, by the time of May 1923, um, the county itself had, I suppose, a year-long history of uh, being pro-treaty almost entirely. The uh, anti-treaty side were peripheral and had been really from about six weeks after the, 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 uh, the Civil War itself really started. Okay, well, it's an excellent look at uh, a very significant county during this revolutionary decade, uh, the county of Roscommon. The book is called Roscommon, the Irish Revolution, 1912 to 1923, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The book is by John Burke. And John, thanks so much for joining us tonight. You're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Between 1947 and 1957, nearly 2,000 people provided statements to the Bureau of Military History about their involvement in the events of the revolutionary decade 1913 to 1923. And in a new book, Eamon Duggan explores these individual contributions and what they add to the history we thought we knew. The book is called We Go Into Action Today at Noon, First-Hand Accounts from Ireland's Revolutionary Years, 1913 to 22. It's published in hardback by the O'Brien Press, the author, as I say, Eamon Duggan. And Eamon, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Patrick. Thank you for having me on. So talk to me about how this archive came about in the first place and the role of Oscar Trainer in the 1940s. Yes, Patrick. Uh, well, in uh, 1947, the then Minister for Defence, Oscar Trainer, uh, did what I suppose was the nation uh, a wonderful service uh, when he initiated the uh, Witness the Statement Programme. Uh, in conjunction with the Bureau of Military History. Now, um, what transpired between 1947 and 1957 was a, a collection of uh, 1,773 witness statements, 334 sets of contemporary documents, 42 sets of photographs, and 13 voice recordings. Now, when the work was completed, it was locked away in the Department of the Taoiseach for about 45 years, and in 2001, it was decided to transfer the statements to the military archives and have them prepared for release into the public domain. 
And while that was done, uh, a team of archivists and support staff under the watchful eyes of uh, Commander Victor Lang managed to successfully prepare the collection for its public launch. And that happened in 2003. Incredible. And we get wonderful insights into the involvement of, you know, different men and women, but not not just the, the you know, it's not it's not the great and the good and the heroic figures or the ones who are uh, dominating events. These are very much ordinary men and women who uh, live their normal lives, but got caught up in some extraordinary activities. Yes, indeed, Patrick. Um, actually, the commitment of the uh, civilian population is uh, a common thread uh, right through the archive. And um, if, if you look at the archive itself, ordinary people uh, got involved in helping the IRA men when they were on the run or part of a flying column. They provided food and shelter, often at a financial cost, uh, while running the risk of being persecuted by the Crown forces. And the archive itself highlights um, the wonderful commitment of the civilian population to the cause of independence. Uh, Whether they were urban dwellers or rural dwellers, it didn't seem to matter. They were all in, so to speak. You also get an insight into some of the the dramatic events of the period and some of the incredible networks that were involved in the revolutionary struggle, including the intelligence network uh, set up by Michael Collins. And we get insights into the role of people like Ned Broy. Yes, indeed. Um, I suppose most people are familiar with with Ned Broy and uh, the part that he played in the intelligence system uh, that uh, Collins actually set up. Uh, He was an extraordinary man, Uh, and uh, his bravery, I suppose, and his courage knew no bounds. Uh, He was basically embedded in the Dublin Metropolitan Police, and yes, he was prepared to take uh, tremendous risks, if you like, to um, uh, provide information and intelligence for Collins and uh, his intelligence unit. And you also get interesting uh, insights into the work of the the squad as well, because there's a chapter on Vinnie Byrne and his statement. It's an extraordinary chapter, to be quite honest, and an extraordinary statement from from Vinnie Byrne. He was a rather young man, as we know. But um, again, his courage knew no bounds, and he was totally and utterly committed to Michael Collins and the squad. Uh, Not only Vinnie Byrne, but uh, all the other young men who were part of uh, the squad um, had a huge allegiance, if you like, to Collins and to the just the ideal of independence and removing the British from from Ireland. So, talk to us about what statements you decided to include and what statements you just didn't have enough space for. How did you make the decision? Because there are some fascinating ones included, but there is also some fascinating ones you had to that you had to leave out that didn't make the cut. So, how did you divide things up? Well, look, from the very outset of the project, um, I worked closely with uh, Michael O'Brien at O'Brien Press, who was extremely supportive and uh, encouraged me right from the very beginning, and with Owen O'Brien, who's a very fine editor. And our problem was who to leave, who to put into the book and who to leave out. But we took the view that um, we wanted to bring to the reader people who were not probably that well-known on the national stage. Now, there are one or two people in the book who are certainly well-known, like Ned Broy, like Sean Moylan, and Father Aloysius. 
But there are others like Daniel Corkery and others in Cork and Limerick and places like that who were who were known on the on the local scene, if you like, uh, but not so much on on the national scene. And we wanted to get to, I suppose, the core of the uh, witness statements and to show that there were people in just in ordinary walks of life who were prepared to put their lives at risk, if you like, for uh, the ideal of independence. And it does lead to this incredible collection of stories and anecdotes and insights into the revolutionary decade. Do you think it deepens our understanding of that period, knowing what they went through, knowing the kind of the challenges they faced? Does it does it change how we how we view this period? Well, I, I should hope that it would. That uh, an analysis of the uh, witness statements and. Uh, basically throws up uh, to the modern-day reader um, the idea that ordinary people, uh, whether they were living in the towns and cities or whether they were living in um, rural areas, uh, had all one common theme, and that was that they wanted to pursue the independence ideal and to remove the British administration from Ireland. And to do that, they were prepared to make sacrifices, put their lives in danger, uh, provide refuge, uh, provide food for those fighting who were prepared to take on the Crown forces. Very good. Well, thanks so much, Eamon, for joining us tonight to talk about these remarkable accounts and records. The book is called We Go Into Action Today at Noon, first-hand accounts from Ireland's revolutionary years. It's published in hardback by the O'Brien Press. The author is Eamon Duggan. And Eamon, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, Patrick, for having me on. It was a pleasure. Elizabeth Stewart is one of the most misrepresented and underestimated figures of the 17th century. Labelled a spendthrift, more interested in the theatre and her pet monkeys than politics, and long pitied as the Winter Queen, the direct ancestor of Elizabeth II was widely misunderstood. But a new biography reveals an altogether different woman, painting a vivid picture of a queen forged in the white heat of European conflict. The book is called Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Hearts. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Nadine Ackerman. And Nadine, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, maybe let's begin with the the subtitle of Queen of Hearts, because uh, most people, if they know anything about her, would know her as the the Winter Queen. Uh, But you've gone for a different title. Absolutely. I've gone for Queen of Hearts because I wanted to really to rehabilitate Elizabeth Stewart. Um, The Winter Queen is just a mock name given to her by her enemies. Nobody in the period actually knew her as such. The contemporaries would call her the Queen of Hearts. She was not so much a Queen of Nations, but she certainly was the Queen of Hearts because she was so charismatic. And talk to us about her life and her career, uh, because uh, she married Frederick V. Uh, they became King and Queen of Bohemia, but then it all went wrong very quickly. Oh, yes, absolutely. She married in 1613 on St. Valentine's Day. Uh, Frederick V elected Palatine. Now, the elected Palatine was one of the seven electors of the Holy Roman Empire, which is most of Germany, and uh, Bohemia, which is now uh, around Prague. And um, it, it's 
he was one of the most powerful princes of the empire. I think that's often misunderstood. Uh, people sort of think about him as a bit of a wimp, but he was actually quite powerful at the time and he would, would become one of a, these kind of military leaders as he was also the leader of the Protestant League. Um, he accepted in, uh, in 1619 the crown of Bohemia and Catholic armies drove them away uh, after, after a year. That's why the enemies mocked mocked him as the winter king because he ruled from one winter to the next winter not just one season as we sort of also think just one winter but uh, an entire year um, but they drove them out they had to flee and the emperor as a kind of repercussion stripped them of his lands and titles that they had in germany so they had nowhere to go apart from going to family in the dutch republic and things then seem to I suppose, develop into a wider European conflict then. And she, in a way, finds herself at the heart of uh, what becomes the Thirty Years' War. Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Basically, accepting that crown in in Prague was the start of of the Thirty Years' War, uh, a conflict which would be devastating for most of Europe. Uh, So many countries would get involved, um, as well as, as, as Britain, uh, because they were fighting for their Stuart princess, Elizabeth Stuart, trying to regain those ancestral lands in Germany uh, that the emperor and the Spanish had taken away from them. Um, so you see Europe sort of enthralled in, 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 in this kind of conflict, which would last for 30 years and which would also overlap with uh, the Eight Years' War. Um, so, so it, wa- it was a, a massive conflict, and she's at the very heart of it, writing to all these kind of diplomats, ambassadors, uh, kings and queens, and that's why her, her correspondence is so interesting. And that's why she is so interesting. She's not just a unique figure, but by looking at her, we understand so much more of the 17th century. You mentioned all the letters. She wrote many letters in this code. And how did you go about deciphering these letters and working out what they actually said? Yes, it, it's it's actually a, a wonderful story, I think. Uh, first got interested in her because she was accused of starting the Thirty Years' War. Uh, historians sort of said it's her ambition that drove her husband to accept the crown. and But nobody had actually looked at their own writings. So I collected her correspondence by going to the archive, uh, to archives all over Europe, to private libraries, um, and and collected her letters. And I found about uh, 2,500 letters, uh, about a thousand that nobody had ever sort of looked at before, as well as uh, over a hundred letters in cipher code because she wanted to, to protect her political secrets. So she produced a, a, a code, and I. I had to decode um, uh, all these letters because they, they had to be decoded before and, and had to sort of reconstruct cipher keys. So it was a bit of a puzzle, but certainly worth it. And why was there this negative image of her then? Uh, was it because uh, when she became a widow, she dressed herself in her apartments in black? Was it because uh, she was maybe underestimated because she was a woman? What was it that meant that uh, there was this negative image of her as someone more interested in her pet monkeys than politics? Whereas, as you show, uh, she was quite expert when it came to statescraft. Yes, I, I think it's it's later historians who unfortunately have given her this negative image. 
And that has to do with how we sort of see women's history. And a lot of good work has been done since the 1980s or so, but that's still, uh, we still need to do a lot more work. Uh, for instance, that, that statement that she cared more for her uh, dogs and monkeys than for her children is a statement taken out of context. It's taken from a memoir written by one of her daughters, Sophia of Hanover, uh, who writes in her memoirs as a kind of opening statement, I'm going to write a satire. I'm going to make fun of everyone. And that's how that statement must be read, because she loved her children dearly. Yes, she did have monkeys, uh, but a lot of aristocratic women had monkeys at the time. It was a symbol of power showing that they had access to the new world. And historians have sort of fallen in the trap of just quoting Catholic propaganda, propaganda of the enemy, which also sort of said that she was frivolous. Um, the enemy, of course, ha had their own agenda. Um, and I think we you need to look at um, Protestant writings as well as Catholic writings in order to come up with a fuller a fuller picture. Um, and I think it's it's such a wonderful source of correspondence. It gives us so much more information about this century um, and about her political agency at the time. She never seems to have lost uh, her hold over the, the people in England. And when she returned there in 1661, uh, she was still, as you say, the Queen of Hearts. Why was there such affection for her in England? Yes, it, it, it starts when she, she is born, really, uh, because she's named after the great Queen of England, Elizabeth I. And uh, many come to sort of see her as almost a reincarnation of uh, of that great Queen Elizabeth I. And she sort of manipulates that comparison herself as well. She, for instance, mimics uh, her godmother's signature. So when sort of people received a letter and uh, just for a split second, they must have thought that they had received a, a letter not of not of Elizabeth Stewart, but of um, the godmother, Elizabeth I. She wore the same kind of jewellery, so she exploited that image, uh, which was used by poets as, as a kind of longing for a golden age. Um, and she sort of made sure that she was associated with militant Protestantism. So she became this kind of Protestant martyr, uh, deliberately choosing voluntary exile in The Hague because so many English as well as Scottish soldiers were garrisoned in The Hague as they were fighting for the Dutch army. So she became a kind of figurehead uh, in, the, in the Dutch capital for those uh, English and Scottish soldiers. And she remained highly popular. Very good. Well, it's a wonderful story. The book is called Elizabeth Stuart, Queen of Hearts. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Nadine Ackerman. And Nadine, thanks a million for joining us tonight. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together. Mike Hogan, my producer, JJ Clark on research and Peter Malloy on sound. Join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.